Today on Lawfare Noble, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on February 9th on the legal and human costs of U.S. drone strikes. The committee heard from five witnesses, including Hina Shamsi, Director of the National Security Project at the ACLU, Radia Al-Mutawakil, Chairperson of the Muatana for Human Rights in Yemen, Stephen Pomper, Chief of Policy at the International Crisis Group, retired Air Force General and Chief of Staff John Jumper, and Nathan Sales, former Ambassador-at-Large and Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department. Welcome. The hearing will come to order. In April of 2013, I held the Senate's first and to date the only hearing on the nation's use of drone strikes to lethally target suspected terrorists overseas. At the time, I was troubled by stories of innocent people being killed by these strikes, as well as the potential for these strikes to violate the law and undermine our national security with very little transparency and accountability. In the nine years since that 2013 hearing, the watchdog group Air Warriors estimates that as many as 10,000 to 30,000 more civilians have been killed by U.S. coalition strikes. These are not just numbers. These are real people. They include a little girl, 11 years old, in a new purple dress sitting down to dinner with her family, a wife as she slept next to her husband, a young boy playing soccer, a father and daughter sitting in their car, a young man outside an ice cream shop, a baby in her mother's arms. To start the hearing, I'd like to turn to a video to show the hidden cost of some of these strikes. I had just checked my daughter to see if she has a sleep. There was a terrible smell in the air. My back has been injured. My left foot uh, broken. My bed was in a V-shape, which resulted in a break to my hip. I looked to the left at my wife, and all I could see was debris. And uh, I started shouting her name, Mayada, Mayada. She did not answer me. I started shouting at my daughter, Tuka. No answer. I could hear a female sound. And then when I started shouting at her, it was my sister-in-law, Azza. And she said, Basim, everybody's gone. I felt that I was in a nightmare. Bob Yates thinks that signature strikes are, are out of hand, that they need to be reined in. There's no judicial process involved, that there is this kill list. In addition to the moral and legal issues involved in drone strikes, there's a policy issue here about whether it's effective. William Webster, who was not only a federal judge, but also a CIA director, and others really claim that no matter if it works or not, it is against who we are as a people and against every value that we hold dear. This is not an issue we can kill our way out of. You cannot kill your way out of this. You, you can't kill your way out of this. That's a mistake. Our nation is at a turning point. In the months after 9-11, we strayed from our values, engaging in torture and indefinite detention at Guantanamo, which continues. We also began conducting lethal strikes in unprecedented ways. It has now been more than 20 years since 9-11. We have ended the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in our history. Let me be clear, the world continues to face challenges from terrorism. Terrorists operate in failed states and ungoverned spaces. They do not wear uniforms, distinguish themselves from civilians, or otherwise follow the laws of war. 
We cannot ignore this reality and this threat. I want to commend the Biden administration for the recent mission against ISIS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qarashi. Rather than a drone strike, the administration deployed ground sources that put our grave, brave service members at risk, but it was an effort to minimize civilian casualties. Al-Qarashi nonetheless detonated a suicide bomb that unnecessarily killed innocent people. This is a reminder of the challenges we face in addressing war and threats from non-state actors who don't follow any rules of war. But as we grapple with these challenges, we have to ensure that the policies governing our response are grounded in the rule of law and respect for human rights. We also must be mindful that in at least 39 countries in the world today, we have armed drones, including North Korea, China, and Russia. So we could be establishing precedents that other nations will follow. Let me clarify, I think I misstated that. We're mindful that at least 39 countries in the world today are believed to have armed drones, including North Korea, China, and Russia. And we must make sure that over the long term, we are actually addressing the root causes of extremist threats instead of prolonging them indefinitely. Our Constitution is clear. Only Congress has the power to decide when the nation goes to war. As the Commander-in-Chief, the President must act within that Constitution's boundaries. Twenty years ago, Congress authorized the use of force against those responsible for 9-11. In 2001, the authorization for use of military force, AUMF, has been stretched by successive precedent presidents far beyond what I and many of my colleagues who joined in voting for it ever, ever imagined. It has been used as the legal basis for strikes in more than half a dozen different countries and against just as many different groups, including groups that did not even exist when Congress voted to pass the AUMF. I and my, many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle have long urged the Congress to take its responsibility seriously and revisit the outdated AUMF. Even when authorized by Congress, the use of legal, lethal force against non-state actors raises complex legal questions, questions that only become more complicated with dramatic advances in AI weapons. International law recognizes that lethal force against terrorists is sometimes necessary and lawful to address imminent threats to life or to target combatants during war. The President also has the authority under the Constitution to defend the nation from sudden attack, as was reaffirmed by the War Powers Act Resolution of 1973. But successive administrations have dangerously expanded these legal authorities. The Obama administration took tentative steps to limit the use of lethal force, but the Trump administration issued its own set of weaker standards. Through it all, 20 years and four administrations, the Department of Justice legal analysis permitting these lethal strikes has remained shrouded in secrecy. The Biden administration has also rightfully sought to restore American leadership on human rights. To do, show, to do so, it should improve its lethal force policies. The executive branch also must address systemic problems that for two decades have routinely led to erroneous targeting of innocent civilians. In addition to doing more to prevent these mistakes in the first place, we must ensure that erroneous strikes are followed by appropriate investigations and accountability, including redress to the victims and families. Following a series of New York Times investigations revealing systemic flaws in the Department of Defense that the Department of Defense mitigates and tracks civilian casualties, 
Secretary Austin issued a memorandum directing the department to develop a civil harm action plan within 90 days. The memo also comes in response to a recent study mandated by Congress, which found the Department of Defense is, quote, not adequately organized a resource to sufficiently assess, reduce, and respond to civilian harm incidents. At this point, I'd like to turn to Ranking Member Grassley for his opening remarks. Uh, this hearing will cover issues related to the Department of Defense's use of force in war on terror. This will include targeted killings and the use of drones. This hearing explores the matter that affect our armed services and our safety as Americans. These are important issues, and there are issues that are more appropriate to the Senate Armed Services Committee. Now, if the chairman knew what I was doing in the 1980s before he got here, he'd say, here, here. You did a lot of investigation of the Defense Department uh, leading to the passage of the False Claims Act. So I am being a little inconsistent with what I just said. But there are, it's I want time. people to know my, what? It's the first time. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, there are things within the heart of our jurisdiction that we should be holding hearings on. And I know that the chairman and I and many members of this committee are concerned with the growing spike in violent crime, including murders and attacks on police. The administration has acknowledged that violent crime is up and has unhelpfully tried to pivot to gun control as the only response. The top priorities of the administration and the Justice Department will include targeting legal gun sellers with no evidence that they significantly contribute to illegal gun possessions or crimes. Ghost guns form a significant cornerstone of the president's policies, but ghost guns are connected to a fraction of a percent of the murders that are occurring in this country. The president's strategy is woefully inadequate to address the spikes in murders and police attacks. It will do nothing to stop people from being pushed uh, into the front of a subway train uh, or to stop trains from being looted or stopping storefronts from being smashed by flash mob attacks or the many other terrible crimes that we're seeing and even seeing them on television. We need a more serious policy. Over 21,000 people were murdered in the United States 2020, 5,000 more than the year before. A hearing would be provide crucial oversight and may even help save lives. But the order of the day by, but the order of the day by the majority is drones. We all believe in limiting civilian casualties as much as possible, but I hope we also acknowledge that we must achieve military objectives as well as protect civilians. We must use methods of fighting wars that reduce the danger and risk to service members. The Biden administration just last week used a targeted operation in Syria to kill the leader a leader of ISIS. Uh, that ISIS leader was responsible for an attack on a Kurdish-run prison that killed 500. 
This attack might not have happened had ISIS been struck earlier. It's what President Abraham Lincoln once called the quote-unquote awful arithmetic of war. Our service members take military action to save the lives of others. Today, we're going to hear from experts, at least from our side, about the importance of maintaining counterterrorism tools of drone strikes. I have received a number of materials from veterans, experts in the law of conflict, and scholars on the importance of maintaining these carefully planned strikes. And without objection, Mr. Chairman, I'll submit those for the record. Uh, drone strikes may become even more necessary after President Biden's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Members of his own administration have testified that a stronger ISIS or Al-Qaeda could launch external attacks from Afghanistan as soon as April of this year. With a loss of intelligence on the ground, strikes and terrorists may uh, be necessary, but I fear that they will also be less efficient. Drones can certainly be very dangerous. They even present a real threat here in the United States. Day after day, we read about drones being used to smuggle drugs across the border. They're used to smuggle contraband into prisons. One would-be Al-Qaeda operative even attempted to attack the Capitol and the Pentagon with weaponized aircraft across the border into Mexico. One cartel moved to assassinate members of a rival cartel with weaponized uh, drones. Both the uh, Trump and Biden administrations have asked Congress to help them by criminalizing dangerous use, uh, use of drones here in the United States. Uh, both administrations approved very similar legislation drafted by experts from across the executive branch. Senators Kelly, Cassidy, and this senator have responded by introducing this legislation, improved by broad consultation with stakeholders in the Drone Act of 2022. I hope that this committee will swiftly take action on this legislation, and I welcome members to join the three of us in co-sponsorship. Let me proceed with the witnesses which we're fortunate to have before us today. Five witnesses to testify about the uh, legal and human cost of these, uh, these uh, U.S. strikes. I'll introduce the majority witnesses. I'll ask Senator Grassley to introduce his witnesses. First majority witness is Hina Shamsi. Ms. Shamsi is the director of the National Security Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. She previously served as senior advisor to the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions. She's a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. Next, we'll hear from Radia Almuta Wakil. I hope I pronounced that close to correct. Chairperson of the Mowatana for Human Rights, an independent Yemeni organization established in 2007 that advocates for human rights and tracks human rights violations and civilian harm in Yemen. Ms. Alam Mutakwa will testify remotely and provide an on-ground, on-the-ground perspective on the impact of lethal force policies in Yemen. Last, not least, we'll hear from Stephen Pomper, Chief of Policy at the Crisis Group. Mr. Pomper previously served in the Obama administration as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights at the National Security Council. 
Ranking Member Grassley, would you please introduce your two minority witnesses? I thank uh, General J Jumper and uh, Ambassador Sales for being here. The General served as the 17th Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force. As a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he provided military advice directly to the President of the United States, the Secretary of Defense, and National Security Council. General Jumper served as the senior uniformed Air Force officer responsible for more than 700,000 active duty, guard, reserve, and civilian forces serving in the United States and overseas during the global war on terror. He oversaw the introduction of uh, numerous air and space combat systems, including unmanned aerial systems. Uh, all of us thank him for his 39 years of service in the military. Ambassador Nathan Sales served as ambassador at large and coordinator for counterterrorism, as well as acting undersecretary for civilian security, democracy, and human rights at State Department. He was also the special presidential envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, leading U.S. relations with 83-member coalition and efforts to ensure the lasting defeat of ISIS in the Middle East and around the world. Ambassador Sales has also previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy, State uh, Homeland Security, and uh, Office of Legal Policy at the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you both for your service. Ms. Shamsi, proceed with your opening statement, please. Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grassley, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify on behalf of the ACLU and for holding this important hearing. I was in the room almost 10 years ago when, thank you, Senator Durbin, this committee last held a hearing on these issues. A young Yemeni democracy activist named Faria al-Muslimi testified that he had seen himself as a cultural ambassador for America because of the scholarships and rich life experiences our country provided him. But then US drone strikes started killing Yemeni civilians, traumatizing entire communities, including in his home village. He explained that strikes were unnecessary and counterproductive People in his village would have cooperated with the Yemeni government to turn over suspected militants. Instead, he said, what violent militants had failed to achieve, one drone strike accomplished in an instant. There is now intense anger. Drone strikes are the face of America. He pleaded for the program to end because of its civilian harms, but it continued. Presidents of both parties unilaterally started launching drone strikes in Yemen without Congress and the American public even having a conversation about it. But the Constitution vests only in Congress the powers to declare war and authorize force because that decision is so consequential for life, liberty, and rights. Yet in multiple countries around the world, successive presidents have used secretive war-based rules to kill terrorism suspects in places where we weren't or aren't at war. In doing so, they've crossed the lines between wartime and peacetime powers that are essential to the rule of law, to democratic accountability, and the right to life. Despite widespread credible accounts of horrifying civilian deaths, the executive branch kept expanding the program and the categories of groups and people who could be targeted. It used vague and ever-shifting secret legal justifications. If any other country had done this, 
we would call it unlawful extrajudicial killing. Yet it's a core component of what Americans now call our forever wars. Even in congressionally authorized wars, like in Afghanistan, our country has failed to live up to its civilian protection obligations. The ACLU and our partners represent survivors of the August 29 drone strike in Kabul, which killed 10 Afghan civilians. I've listened to fathers describe the horror of having to pick up the body parts of their children. I've listened to one of my clients struggle to breathe through her despair after the killing of her husband, an aid worker for an American NGO, and three of her sons, and one of her grandchildren. My client's grief is compounded by the fact that for 19 days, our government kept up false allegations about their loved ones, wrongly asserting the strike was righteous and successful against ISIS operatives. The Pentagon later admitted its mistake, but the damage is done. For most Americans, this kind of fear, horror, and lifelong grief are unimaginable. To civilians in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, and elsewhere, it's been their life. This hearing's title refers to drones and their significant concern that reliance on them lowers both barriers to and constraints on the use of force. But our issues go beyond the weapon to the human and legal costs of what's now a 20-year war-based approach that, that turned a lethal force tactic into a strategy damaged the rule of law and our country's reputation, fueled conflicts, and set a dangerous precedent for other nations. The American people have grown tired of this militarized approach, and in the last election, both parties' presidential candidates promised to end endless wars. We're at an inflection point, as you said, Senator Durbin. We can continue down the costly old path or we can invest in alternatives that actually keep us all safer, like a robust array of diplomatic law enforcement development and other resources to actually mitigate security concerns abroad and at home. To help chart a new art path, I urge you to take three actions. First, use your oversight powers to demand that executive branch officials testify about and make public their legal and policy justifications for lethal force where Congress did not authorize it. Require the executive branch to make public the countries where it uses force and the groups against which that force is used. If our country is to live up to the values it professes, there can be no place for secret law or secret lethal force. Second, use your Article I power of the purse to deny funding for unauthorized unlawful use of force. And third, please, restore our constitutional system of checks and balances and Congress's authority on matters of war and peace. General Jumper. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm pleased to be able to provide testimony today uh, about the use of uh, remotely piloted vehicles and specifically armed RPVs and to share the table with uh, those uh, who care so much about these important issues. Uh, I've submitted written testimony, so my opening remarks will be short. The introduction of the uh, Predator RPV to the Air Force inventory in the mid-1990s marked a significant improvement in our ability to, to stare at targets over extended periods of time. The Predator, with an endurance of 24 hours, allowed real-time video streamed back to command centers on large screens where commanders could study, analyze, corroborate uh, with other means of identification and assess uh, the potential for collateral damage. 
The first predators were not armed, so the targets they identified had to be described using cumbersome voice communications to pilots uh, much the same as I did when I was working with forward air controllers uh, in Vietnam in 1969. During Operation Allied Force in Kosovo in 1999, we added a laser designator to the Predator so it could cue bomb-carrying aircraft to targets that, were, that it had located. When the Predator was first armed with a Hellfire missile some 22 years ago, it allowed us to take action against fleeting targets in nearly real time. This profound sense, this profound increase in capability prompted a stricter rules of engagement, uh, the creation of stricter rules of engagement that required predator crews and those in the chain of command to take every precaution to avoid civilian casualties and unnecessary collateral damage. In recent conflicts, where enemy forces often deliberately mix with civilian populations, the same attention has been paid to rules of engagement gov governing delivery of all munitions uh, by the Air Force uh, with the use of precision-guided munitions, not just drones and Hellfire missiles. Still, regrettably, there have been instances of casualties due to misidentification of targets, the enemy mixing themselves in with civilians, the use of human shields, and a very limited, and a very limited number of cases, violations of the rules of engagement. Our technology has uh, progressed to the point where information and decisions can be made at the speed of light, instead of the speed of voice communications or keyboard input. This will advantage the side that can most rapidly and precisely identify, locate, and engage targets from the air, land, sea, space, or the cyber domain. Stealthy UAVs and uh, RPAs and hypersonic RPAs uh, are uh, available in other countries today. They make us vulnerable to nations who care little about civilian casualties or collateral damage. But the U.S. does care. For the United States military, there will always be rules of engagement, even as technology allows instant decisions. It has been and will continue to be the responsibility of commanders to ensure strict enforcement of rules of engagement and accountability for violations. I know these commanders and I know these crews that operate these RPVs. They are mothers, they are fathers, and they do care. We can be sure, Mr. Chairman, that there is no open debate about protecting innocent civilians such as this one here today in this session being conducted by political leaders of nations and regimes who have opposed, we have opposed, and no such inquiry would ever be considered in those places. Thank you very much. Uh, our next witness is Radia Almuta Wakil. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. My name is Radhiya Mutawakkil. I'm joining from Yemen, my country that is known today as the worst humanitarian man-made crisis in the world. I am the chairperson of Muwatana for Human Rights. We are more than 100 men and women working all over Yemen, including documenting human rights abuses by all parties to the ongoing conflict. In addition to all dangerous that Yemenis are facing today from Saudi and Emirati-led coalition airstrikes to indiscriminate shelling by Ansarullah to starvation, Yemenis continue to face the risk that the United States will carry out attacks that harm their loved ones in the name of countering terror. Today, I would like to share with you the impact of these attacks through the eyes of myself and my team. I first documented the devastating civilian consequences of U.S. operations in Yemen back in 2013. Abdul Rashid Al-Faqih, the executive director of Muatana, and I 
documented nine U.S. attacks that killed 26 civilians and injured 13 civilians between 2012 and 2014. At that time, I remember a father of whose civilian son was killed by a U.S. strike told us they just kill. They don't know what havoc their missiles have caused. They are unaware of the suffering they create for our families. Almost 10 years later, another father of another civilian killed by the U.S. in Yemen told Muatana's researcher, we tried more than once to make our voice heard, asking the U.S. to come and check, but nobody wanted to hear us. Last year, Muatana published a new investigation into U.S. level operations in Yemen. Our researchers interviewed 96, witness, uh, 96 witnesses, survivors, and family members. They collected photographs, videos, medical records, and government documents. We found that 12 U.S. operations killed at least 38 civilians, including 13 children, and caused other types of grave and long-lasting harm between 2017 and 2019. In an effort uh, to seek justice, Muadana, along with the Columbia Law School Human Rights Clinic, sent more than 150 pages of, of evidence highlighting the civilian impact of U.S. attacks to U.S. Uh, Central Command. U.S. Central Command's response, response uh, which came many months after our submission, were completely insufficient. Out of all the civilian harm Watana documented, U.S. Central Command only acknowledged uh, one new civilian casualty. The U.S. military did not identify the civilian uh, by name, but we knew who it was. Salah Al-Qaisi, a father of six children and was killed while visiting home. It is hard to know uh, what would ever be enough to convince the U.S. military to address the civilian harm it has caused in places like Yemen. Our researchers spent years gathering evidence in remote areas facing significant risk. After all that, the U.S. military dismissed most of the cases and refused to provide any remedies or accountability whatsoever. After we heard from the U.S. military, we called the families of the victims. We heard the disappointment in their voices. We had to, uh, we had to tell Salah Al-Qaisi's son uh, that uh, while the U.S. acknowledged that his father was a civilian, they would uh, do nothing about it. No public apology, no reparations, and no justice. U.S. attacks in Yemen, drone strikes, or ground raids have led to more poverty in some of the poorest areas in Yemen. These areas don't have hospitals or proper schools. Many don't have even electricity or regular uh, access to, to water. And they have asked, what, what, is, what, what is it uh, that the U.S. can reach us with the most advanced military technology before even electric cables can reach us? The impact of U.S. attacks is more than numbers uh, can show. There are painful pictures that will flash before my eyes and the eyes of my team for the rest of our lives. A grandmother fainting after seeing the body of her 17-year uh, old grandson, an adult son gathering uh, his mother's remains while a husband rushed to get his pregnant wife to the hospital watching her die, a mother found dead clutching her child, another mother finding her 14-year-old son body on fire. 
In almost all the interviews conducted by Muwatana victims and their families have called for investigations and accountability. They are still waiting. Regardless of which president or party has controlled the White House, the United States has never fully investigated the civilian cost of its operations in Yemen and has never provided civilian victims the acknowledgement, apology, justice, and reparations they are owed. 20 years after the U.S. began a secret and unaccountable killing in Yemen, the U.S. should, at long last, change towards a rights-respecting course. Ambassador Nathan Sales. I'd like to make three points in my testimony. First, drones are an important part of an integrated counterterrorism strategy that includes not just military, but also civilian sector capabilities. Second, compared to the alternatives, drone strikes can minimize harm to civilians, which is essential for legal, moral, and strategic reasons. And third, transparency and accountability are essential in the aftermath of mistaken strikes. Properly used, Drone strikes allow us to remove terrorists from the battlefield with maximum precision and minimal risk to our, to our troops. Of course, drones can't solve the problem of terrorism on their own, but they're an effective tool when used alongside civilian tools like sanctions, criminal prosecutions, border security, counter-messaging, and so on. Terrorists themselves recognize the effectiveness of drones. In letters seized from Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Al-Qaeda's leader instructed his subordinates to stay indoors, quote, except on a cloudy, overcast day, unquote. Another top Al-Qaeda figure lamented that the group had been, quote, suffering from the spy planes problem in the spy war, especially in the tribal area. In particular, drones can degrade terrorist groups by eliminating their leaders. Of course, new leaders will rise up to replace the old ones, but they may not be as charismatic or as effective. Ayman al-Zawahiri is no Osama bin Laden. In addition, decapitation strikes can be deeply demoralizing to the terrorist rank and file. Drones can disrupt attack planning as terrorists go into hiding to avoid becoming targets themselves. It's harder to play offense if you're playing defense. Strikes can also illuminate terrorist networks as operatives chatter among themselves, creating opportunities for intelligence collection or follow-on strikes. Furthermore, drone strikes reduce the risk of injury and death to U.S. military personnel. Some operations that otherwise might have required ground forces can be carried out remotely by drones. With fewer troops in combat zones, drones enable our military to fight terrorists without putting large numbers of American soldiers in harm's way. Moreover, because drones are precision weapons, they can reduce the risk of civilian casualties when compared to the alternatives. Few military platforms are as precise and as discriminating as drones. Other options can involve less precision, potentially resulting in greater risk of collateral damage and death. It's important to understand that drones can also promote important humanitarian aims by thwarting terrorist plots against innocent civilians. For example, in August of 2014, DOD carried out 25 strikes in northern Iraq to slow ISIS's advance on Erbil and allow Yazidis to escape a genocidal onslaught. These drone strikes likely saved thousands of civilian lives. Let me say a few more words about why it's so important to protect civilians in the course of drone operations. The law of armed conflict includes the distinction principle, which requires combatants to distinguish between combatants and civilians and to target only the former. 
It also includes the proportionality principle, under which combatants must avoid causing incidental harm to civilians that's excessive in relation to the military advantage to be gained. Beyond these legal requirements, the Obama and Trump administrations both adopted a default rule that a drone strike may not take place unless there is near certainty that civilians will not be harmed. This standard appears to offer even more protection to civilians than what is required by the law of armed conflict. As for the morality of avoiding civilian casualties, protecting innocent human life is a fundamental American value. This is who we are as Americans. We fight hard, but we fight fair. We play by the rules, and one of the most important rules is to avoid inflicting the horrors of war on innocent bystanders. Of course, sometimes we make mistakes, and I want to pause here to acknowledge the powerful testimony of the witness who's joined us today from Yemen. We also saw this in heartbreaking fashion in the drone strike in Kabul last August that killed 10 innocent civilians, including seven children. When mistakes are made, when civilians are inadvertently killed, the United States must live up to the highest standards of transparency and accountability. The American people deserve to know what was done in their name, and those who are responsible for any wrongdoing should be held to account. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge that in many cases, the alternatives to drone strikes could involve greater risk to our troops and to local civilians alike. Stephen Pomper is next. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today on this important topic. I worked on these issues from the legal side at the Department of State's Office of the Legal Advisor and the policy side at the National Security Council, and they are difficult issues indeed. Members of the committee, in September 2021, President Biden told the United Nations General Assembly that, I stand here today for the first time in 20 years with the United States not at war. But the United States is still very much waging war. While last year marked the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, it did not mark the end of its military counterterrorism operations around the world. Those operations, which to this day are largely conducted under the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF, are directed against an amalgamation of groups that includes Al-Qaeda, some affiliates known as Associated Forces, and ISIS. They extend to territories far beyond Afghanistan. This ongoing campaign is widely referred to as the War on Terror. Much about the War on Terror is hidden. We hear about it when there's a big success, as last week, and we hear about it when things go terribly wrong, as when four U.S. service members died in Togo, Togo, Niger, Tango, Tango, Niger, forgive me, in 2017. But there's a great deal we, the public, do not ever hear about. We do not know exactly who the U.S. is fighting or where or who its local partners are. We do not have a reliable sense of who is being killed or how the communities where the U.S. is operating are affected. Part of this is because of operational secrecy. Part of it is because these foot, uh, operations are light footprint and intentionally reduce the risk of American casualties, which are which draw uh, U.S. media attention. But there's also an institutional explanation, and that is that the executive branch has effectively run away with this war. Successive administrations have developed doctrines that allow them to expand the scope of the conflict unilaterally. Rather than seek authority from Congress, they turn to their own lawyers. They decide what sorts of safeguards are appropriate to guard against civilian casualties and do not have sufficiently strong systems for understanding when those safeguards fail. This increases the risk of imprudent war making and all the ills that can follow, shattered lives, destroyed communities, the grievances that these create and the potential for these grievances to ricochet back against the United States in the form of a new generation of national security threats. It may cause the United States to be overextended militarily at a time when it faces many global and strategic challenges that command its urgent attention. 
Moreover, allowing the executive branch to determine the scope of a conflict without public deliberation that includes a reckoning with the costs of the conflict also makes it very difficult for both the public and the Congress to assess the extent to which conflict has outlived some or all of its purposes. That in turn makes it harder to assess when the conflict can be throttled back or brought to an end. Last week, Secretary of Defense Austin issued a directive that appears intended to respond to recent accounts of civilian casualties in the press. I hope it brings about change, and I've offered some suggestions for how to bring about that change in my written testimony. But trying to blunt the worst effects of conflict should not be a surrogate for confronting the bigger questions that the U.S. needs to ask itself after 20 years of war. And while I'm not going to make the case today for the U.S. to simply stop using military force in its counterterrorism operations, I will argue that the best and probably only way to test the risks, weigh the costs, and determine the proper scope of this in any conflict is to encourage interbranch discussion, which has been too lacking in recent years. <clears throat> Indeed, there's a good case that this is what the framers envisaged when they drafted the Constitution. They invested significant war powers in the Congress, including the power to declare war because of its deliberative nature, which they believed would be a break on imprudent war making. But the consolidation of power in the executive branch through aggressive interpretation of the Constitution, the War Powers Resolution of 1973, and the 2001 AUMF have all shrunk Congress's role, and that role needs to be restored. And there are things that the executive branch can and should do as it's part of this restoration effort, including the revocation of certain uh, opinions of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, which I've referred to in my written statement, that really aggrandize uh, executive power in a, in a breathtaking way. But to restore constitutional balance on matters of war and peace, the main work that needs to be on is legislative. And here there are two main tasks. One is amending the 2001 AUMF so that it is explicit about who the U.S. is fighting, where and to what end, and to require periodic reauthorization, perhaps every two or three years, to ensure that both political branches of government can be meaningfully held to account by the American public when they determine the scope of the nation's wars. And the other is amending the 1973 War Powers Resolution to restore congressional prerogatives in determining when and where the United States goes to war by defining key terms like hostilities, shortening the 60-day period between congressional notification and mandated withdrawal for unauthorized operations, and denying funding to conflicts that proceed inconsistent with these requirements. With provisions along these lines, the National Security Powers Act, introduced last year by Senators Lee, Murphy, and Sanders, and companion legislation in the House of Representatives, would help restore the interbranch balance that is so lacking. I want to express my gratitude to those members of Congress for their leadership on this important issue. I want to thank members of the committee for holding this important hearing, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate your testimony, Mr. Pomper. Addressing this issue has to start at this side of the table in terms of our role as defined by the Constitution in light of the new threats to national security and the new tools of war. Uh, I can tell you that the vote for AUMF 20 years ago never envisioned that I would be considering the use of drones and uh, innocent civilian casualties in Yemen. That was not uh, part of our calculation when we responded to 9-11. And so we have to take on the responsibility of accepting our constitutional uh, mandate and implementing it uh, in light of changed circumstances in a dramatic way. Secondly, I believe it's naive to think that terrorism has an expiration date or that terrorists are looking forward to a peace negotiation. Uh, I don't think that is the nature of the threat. 
uh, and we have to accommodate that as well. We think in terms of classic war, and this is far from classic. The third question, obviously, is what we're going to do by way of oversight on the executive branch. Mr. Popper, could you tell me, by your definition, how many countries the United States is now using drones in to fight terrorism? Lethal drones. So thank you very much for the question, uh, Senator. Uh, I think you've put your finger on a really important point by asking that question. The answer is I honestly can't tell you um, with any level of confidence how many countries. Um, the executive branch did, I believe, last report uh, on the groups that it is fighting in a report that it, uh, the Obama administration issued at the end of 2016. I believe that subsequent reports, um, including reports that have been mandated to this body by the NDAA, uh, have included some key details in classified annexes that are not available to the public. So de decisions about which groups the US is fighting under the AUMF, where it's fighting them, are taken in the first instance within the executive branch. They may be reported to Congress through committee channels or through reports uh, that can include classified annexes, but they are not necessarily available to the public. And the result is that it can come as a surprise to find out that the United States is using drones or it's using brown troops or other means of, of projecting force in parts of the world that people aren't aware that the United States is at war in. But think about what that says. We're supposed to declare war on behalf of the American people and ask them to give up their children and loved ones to serve our nation in a noble cause. And yet, at this moment in time, the average routine uh, of members of Congress does not include a disclosure of how many countries we are currently at war with. And I would suggest that if we are using drones in a lethal capacity uh, to hunt terrorism, let alone to kill innocent individuals, that should be at least disclosed to the American people. It's it, it, just amazing to me that it is not. And I think it really betrays the wisdom of this policy and the legality of it. So let me go to one example I used earlier, and that is uh, the situation in Yemen. Uh, if Ms. Al-Mataqwal is uh, uh, properly summarized, she believes there have been 64 innocent civilians killed and 20 wounded by the United States in the use of drones in Yemen. So I'd like to ask Ambassador Sales and General Jumper to react to that, establishing that as a premise, but also to react to a quote from General Stanley McChrystal about the use of drones. This is what he said. What scared me about drone strikes, General McChrystal said, is how they are perceived around the world. The resentment created by American use of unmanned strikes is much greater than the average American appreciates. They are hated on a visceral level, even by people who've never seen one or seen the effects of one. I, I raise that point because uh, Ambassador Sales said that these are precision weapons. It's hard to argue they are precision weapons if 64 innocent people were killed in a country where most Americans would not list as one of our combatants in war. So would you like to react to General McChrystal's statement, General Jumper, or Ambassador Sales, please? Uh, sure, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'm, I'm happy to, to take a stab at that. 
Um, I, I think um, drone strikes are precise compared to the alternatives. Consider a fixed wing aircraft, consider um, uh, conventional ground forces uh, going in to an objective uh, to, to use lethal force. Um, to say that drone strikes are more precise than the alternative is not to say that they don't make mistakes. Sometimes they do. Sometimes intelligence is incomplete. Um, sometimes uh, terrorists are hiding among civilians that operators were not aware of. Uh, of course, um, drones are a tool that can be used uh, in a more precise or less precise way. Uh, the, the key point, however, I think is that when compared to the alternatives, drones do a, a much better job of allowing the United States to comply with our obligations under the law of armed conflict uh, to respect the proportionality principle and also uh, to put into practice some of the policy standards that are offering even more protection to civilians than the baseline requirements of the law of armed conflict. Senator Grassley. General Jumper, uh, thank you for appearing today. In your 39 years in the military, you saw capability of drones develop and evolve. You described in your written testimony a drone that could see Serbian forces invade Kosovo and kill civilians, but could not do anything to stop it. So as chief of staff of the Air Force during the first four years of the global war on terror, you led uh, uh, as drones became a vital tool in precision targeting and terrorist combat combatants. What are the advantages of using weaponized drones, and why were drones first? When were they? Why were they first armed? Uh, when I was a young captain in Vietnam, uh, and for um, all the time from 1969 up to uh, the the mid 90s. Uh, when we went on a mission, we essentially had all the information about the target we were going to strike on our kneeboard. Uh, we had uh, pictures that were uh, at best hours, but usually days or even weeks old of a potential target. Uh, we would go to a forward air controller that was circling the uh, target in a uh, light aircraft, and we would take uh, verbal cues uh, off of roads and geographic um, geographically distinctive features to try and locate uh, the target, uh, and then we would uh, bomb the target. In some cases, these were troops in contact, and the urgency there was palpable. You could see uh, enemy forces in the, in the wire at the special forces camps. Uh, but the process of communicating the information was laborious, and uh, mistakes were made, and if it was fire coming from a building, the uh, standard was to destroy the building. Uh, we didn't know, other than it was fire emanating from that building, we didn't know what else was in that building. And if you look at the estimates of civilian casualties in Vietnam and the Korean War and uh, wars uh, uh, earlier, uh, they, are, uh, they are astounding, large, large numbers. Uh, with the invention of the Predator UAV and the ability to stare and hover over targets for long periods of time, uh, with uh, imaging infrared, with electro-optical and synthetic aperture radar, and uh, corroborate that information with uh, signals intelligence that come from, uh, uh, might come from the same area. We, we uh, elevated our capability to uh, be more precise and to uh, uh, characterize targets and to assess collateral damage by orders of magnitude. 
that this is not still satisfactory in many occasions is something that we continue to have to uh, work on, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I certainly agree with that. We need to do better. Uh, but this capability has uh, given us uh, the ability to discriminate in ways that we have never done before, been able to do before. The Hellfire missile with a 20-pound warhead, or even weapons that have no warheads have been used to make sure that collateral damage is minimized. Uh, when mistakes are made, they uh, have to be addressed. When rules of engagements are violated, people have to be held accountable. And I think uh, commanders uh, that I know would agree with those statements. So uh, this capability with RPVs is increased by orders of magnitude, our ability to be more discreet, uh, and we continue it's something we still need to work on. Uh, Ambassador Sales, what is the effect of Afghanistan's fall to the Taliban and the creation of a safe haven in Afghanistan, which uh, I stated about in my opening comments, on the need for continued drone program? If we simply abandon the drone program and ISIS and al-Qaeda are allowed to get stronger, what can we expect? Well, Senator, I, I think one thing that we should fear is that Afghanistan could return to the terror safe haven that it was in the years that led up to 9-11. Okay. Um, my, my concern is that with the complete withdrawal of U.S. personnel from Afghanistan, uh, the, the supporting elements necessary to carry out an effective campaign of drone strikes against ISIS elements there or al-Qaeda elements there um, will not make it possible for us to apply counterterrorism pressure to these growing terrorist threats. In order to do drone strikes, and, and, and this goes to their precision, and it also goes to um, how discriminating operators can be when using this tool, in order to use uh, drone strikes in a country, you need to have signals intelligence collection capabilities. You need to have human sources on the ground who are prepared to tell information to the United States that puts their own lives at risk, but they're willing to do it because they know the United States will have their back. We don't have those assets in the country anymore. And so my fear is that as ISIS Khorasan province begins to uh, grow its capabilities, and as al-Qaeda looks to grow its capabilities under the, under the protection of the Taliban, the United States will have neither the intelligence we need to know what our adversaries are planning, nor the strike assets in the country to take action in a precise and targeted way against a reconstituting terrorist threat. Senator Leahy. So I have a uh, question for Hina Shamsi. While the most important focus should be preventing civilian casualties from happening in the first place, something I think we all agree upon, when they occur, the U.S. government has to be ready to provide redress, including through ex gratia payments. <clears throat> and we have a specific law on that. Unfortunately, the Department of Defense's track record in conducting credible investigations and providing these Payments have been abysmal. Congress recently uh, repeatedly authorized expiration payments in the law. Most recently allocated $3 million in annual funding to compensate civilians. And yet in 2020, for example, when there were a significant number of civilian casualties, the Pentagon did not make a single offer of compensation. And that's uh, notwithstanding the law that we pass. So uh, 
Ms. Shumsey, how does it damage our moral standing and our reputation when the U.S. government fails to provide redress after causing civilian uh, casualties? And what steps should the Defense Department make to ensure that credible investigations are done, innocent people who are harmed receive timely compensation? Thank you, Senator Leahy. Um, it is significantly damaging to our reputation, but also our obligations to provide amends um, to people that we have harmed. Um, but let me just start by saying, of course, you're exactly right that um, that after Congress authorized $3 million of ex gratia payments um, first year, it was reported out that none were made. Um, but it also goes back to a sort of significant issue of um, the military needs to know uh, that it has actually conducted uh, operations that are lawful. And what we know, and I know personally from having advised um, civilians who reach out to us from Yemen or Somalia or elsewhere, it is extremely hard for civilians to even access the military um, and to provide their information about um, innocent lives wrongly taken. Um, and it's important to recognize that where that starts out is application of civilian harm prevention methods. And to recognize um, that in the context of actual recognized wars, for example, like in Iraq or Afghanistan or uh, Syria, um, there have been fundamental uh, problems with tracking civilian deaths and injuries, significant gaps between the military's own assessments because it relies on its own data, does not conduct investigations that incorporate information from civilians or witnesses, and all we of We also have the problem that there's uh, sometimes a delegation of authority in doing that is, is faulty, and I... Uh, I realize that uh, since September 11th, Republican and Democratic administrations have developed what's been a secret body of law for drone strikes in countries where Congress has never even authorized the use of military forces. So uh, the executive branch, essentially judge and jury, deciding whether it's uh, complying with its own rules for dro uh, drone strikes. What does, that, what does that accomplish, that lack of transparency? It's a fundamental problem, uh, Senator Leahy. And what it goes back to is where we sort of started out some of the issues with the hearing, which is that using secret legal interpretations applied to secret facts based on secret evidence, um, after 2001, uh, the successive administrations uh, came up with interpretations of authorizations for use of force, the 2001-2002 authorizations that went far beyond what Congress had authorized and permitted. These secret interpretations, some of which only came to light after the ACLU and the New York Times sued years uh, and only came to light years later, these are important things that this committee can demand uh, transparency of using all of the powers it has because it is under this body of secret law that uh, successive administrations have grabbed 
power that belongs to Congress uh, under Article 1, the power to, under the Declare War Clause, and through interpretations of terms like associated forces, successor forces, novel theories of self-defense have gone far beyond what Congress intended or authorized mm -hmm. in acting with the use of force in multiple countries around the world. My, my time is up, but I'm going to submit for the record a question to you and to uh, uh, Ms. Amu Tawaku. Uh, why, from a human rights perspective, why is it important for the U.S. government to accurately acknowledge the number of civilian casualties, and what could the Department of Defense do to improve the uh, reporting of the number of civilian casualties? So I'll submit that for the record, if I might, Mr. Chair. Without objection. Senator Lee? Ms. Shamsi, I, I, I'd like to ask... Uh, you a couple questions about this, if that's all right. Can you share with us some of the major flaws that you see in these existing authorities uh, um, um, for purposes of, of future U.S. counterterrorism efforts? Uh, certainty, certainly, Senator Lee. And may I just begin by uh, thanking you for the bipartisan legislation that you've introduced with respect to Congress's reassertion of its power and authority to declare war. And I'd like to start with that just because it is so incredibly important. Because as we've been talking about for 20 years now, over 20 years, successive presidents have grabbed power that belongs solely to Congress. Um, as you know, under um, uh, Article One, only Congress has the authority to declare war, except in the event of a limited and genuine emergency, like in response to a to an attack, or uh, an imminent emergency where Congress does not have the time to act. And even then, the president needs to come back and seek authorization for those uses of force to continue. That is what the 1973 War Powers Resolution was supposed to do, but that. Uh, safeguard against a previous era of uh, uh, use of force violations, that system of checks and balances is broken, Senator Lee. And your legislation, your co-sponsored legislation, recognizes that and does some very, very important things, I think. One is that it reigns in presidential authority um, to, to use force. It defines important terms that had been left or were deemed ambiguous under the War Powers Resolution, like hostilities. Uh, it reigns in definitions of imminence. Um, successive administrations have done violence to the English language as well as lives in their interpretation of what uh, imminence means. Um, and it, it provides important reporting uh, and transparency requirements as well as a funding cutoff, reversing the switch so that Congress itself can be the deliberative body it needs to be. And the final thing that I would add is that what we've seen now with successive interpretations of the 2001-2002 AUMF, this is an opportunity for Congress to um, uh, rein in these powers and to ensure that any future AUMF it passes is defined with respect to objective, opponent, temporal uh, limitation, and what what outcomes are expected, so that Congress may may 
may fulfill its role under the Constitution? Uh, on the time constraint in, in particular, um, you know, considering that it's 2022 and that the 2001 AUMF is still in effect, my, my youngest child, my daughter Eliza, was an infant at the time the 01 AUMF was passed. So that, that's been in place literally her entire life and she'll be graduating from college next year. Um, considering how long that one has lasted, um, how important would you say it is for us as a Congress to limit, to impose a time limit on future authorizations for the use of military force to make sure that um, we're not just creating a, a, a roving uh, open-ended commission to make war, investing that power within the executive branch? Senator Lee, I would say that it is imperative. And in fact, Congress has had uh, more specific authorizations in the past. So Congress knows how to impose these limits when it wants to. And this ensures that the executive would come back to Congress should, uh, should authorities be needed. But it's now 20 years later, uh, proponents have to bear the burden of making the case. And we have to take into account as a nation the costs and consequences of war-based authorities, obviously to civilian lives, but also imperatively to our rule of law and democratic accountability. Senator Feinstein. So I'd like to ask this question to everyone if they would quickly answer it. What do you believe the value in reinstituting the requirement for an annual report on US drone strikes outside of war zones that include civilian casualty numbers would have. Senator, I'm happy to Please. <clears throat> jump in. Um, so I was actually part of the effort back in 2016 to come to the arrangement that allowed that level of disclosure. I will say stepping outside that role now, that it's extremely important that transparency um, be promoted by the executive branch, by this branch, that that requirement be reinstated. But I would also want to make the caveat that there was an enormous discrepancy between the number that the executive branch reported back then and the number that was being reported by outside consolidators. And one of the reasons I think that that transparency by the executive branch was so important was because it, it did, did create pressure, I think, on the different operating agencies to explain why there was that discrepancy. And I know that the, the, the story that the executive branch tells is that this is because it has information that outsiders don't have. But I think as we've seen from recent reporting by the New York Times, sometimes outsiders have information that the executive branch does not have or that doesn't make its way to Washington. So I think in terms of creating a positive dynamic that actually sheds light on the costs of conflict, it's extremely important to create that requirement, but I think it's also important to take a very um, appraising eye of the, of the information that the executive branch provides. And let me ask this last question uh, of the panel. What data do you believe should be included in that annual report, which I would hope to have? Thank you, Senator. Um, I think a few things. One is that it would be incredibly useful to have the terms that the military uses defined, because one of the issues that civil society groups, human rights groups, impacted communities have raised over and over again is understanding what terms uh, 
the understanding who the military applies a civilian status to and who it applies a combatant status to. Another important issue, and these are some of the, the um, a lot of the concerns that we have were um, repeated actually in a very important RAND Corporation study uh, that came out at the end of January that added to what uh, we and other groups have been saying and our partners, which is that the military tends to um, undercount civilian casualties in part because it relies only on its own records and gives it privileges its own records. Um, whereas uh, it is skeptical of external sources that often turn out to be more accurate, such as report from civil society and media, because civil society and media actually conduct investigations of witnesses. So more information about methodology and a reflection of lessons learned after four years, five years of criticism of why these numbers are not accurate. I, I would echo Ms. Shamsi's point. I would say that it's particularly important that that the executive branch be very explicit about the methodology that it uses to determine civilian casualties and who it regards as a civilian and who it regards as a combatant, because these are not really made clear on the face of the doctrine that's been published um, and made available to the public. I just, yeah, just very quick thing. Even when the data is available from the ground, nothing has happened from the US. So having the information, having the data is very important, but it's the minimum. What is the reactions? What is our, what are the accountability mechanisms? What are the other mechanisms in order to deal with this data? So it's not only a matter of data. We provided the US, the CINTCOM with all the data we have, but nothing happened. Thank you. General Jumper, would you like to conclude? I would just say transparency is important. I think commanders in the field know that they're responsible and accountable. Uh, I think that uh, they are not responsible for the definitions that are used. Uh, but uh, I think any ability, any uh, uh, transparency that we can uh, get is helpful in this situation as uh, time goes on. So I'm not going to presume on any member of the committee. Uh, I believe that Senator Feinstein has made a valuable suggestion, and I would like to join her in preparing a letter that would uh, call on the administration to respond based on what our witnesses have told us and invite anyone else interested to join us in that effort. Thank you. Thank you. You're Mr. welcome. Senator Leahy will also join. Senator Graham, you're next. General Jumper, is America at war? Uh, to the American servicemen, sir, uh, we've been at war for a long time. Well, is the American people at war? If so, who with? Who are we at war with? Uh, sir, we're fighting uh, an enemy out there who's determined to kill us. Who are they? Uh, they are these uh, terrorist organizations that we... Al-Qaeda, is that an enemy of the ISIS, American people? ISIS and Al-Qaeda yeah. continue to be... Ms. Uh, uh, Shamsi, do you agree that, or do you believe, that if Al-Qaeda and ISIS could strike the, uh, attack the American homeland, they would? Senator Graham, I think what's important is that... No, what's important is you answer the question first and give an explanation. It's a simple question. Do you believe if Al-Qaeda and ISIS had the ability... They have the desire, I think. They had the ability they would strike America today or tomorrow if they could. Senator Graham, the reason that I'm having a hard time answering a, that with a yes or no answer is because... That's all I need to know. So, uh, Mr. Sales, what's the threat to America now from Al-Qaeda and ISIS? Is it less, more, the same? 
Uh, I think it's substantial, Senator. Um, it is not what it was before 9-11, uh, in part because we have used force to degrade their networks and to destroy their sources of fundraising and to harden our borders. Um, uh, their capability to strike the homeland may be less than it was 20 years ago, but the intention to strike the homeland, to strike us around the world, is still very present. Would you say their ability to plan an attack in Afghanistan against the American people has gone up since our withdrawal? Senator, I I'm sorry to agree with you that it has gone up. Uh, we don't have the intelligence collection capabilities to know what our enemies are doing in Afghanistan, nor do we have strike assets uh, that can take action when necessary. Has the drone program prevented pilots from being put at risk? Uh, that's not the main point, sir, but the answer is yes. Uh, I don't think that's the main point of the pro drone program. Well, the drone program, has it been an effective tool in terms of killing terrorists? Very effective, sir. Uh, has it killed civilians? It has, sir. Our next uh, senator to speak, Senator Blumenthal. Let me ask uh, Ms. Shamsi, do you think the administration is moving quickly enough to implement those principles? Unfortunately not, Senator Blumenthal, and thank you for your question. Um, I think it's also important just to clarify a couple of things that I think also your letter helpfully raised and pointed out. You know, one is that when we're talking about this program, uh, what are we actually talking about? Um, we have been using drones, but also other uh, airstrikes in recognized armed conflict, for example, in Afghanistan, um, where uh, my client's loved ones so recently were killed. Um, and in fact, it's more uh, airstrikes not using drones that have happened in Afghanistan. And in places like that, what applies is the law of war. In other countries where drones started being launched, the US wasn't at war. And um, so when we're talking about where we stand and what the Biden administration is doing, it's really important to step back and say, 20 years later, when we look at how the concerns that you and your colleagues so importantly and rightly raised in your letter, um, how are they going to be addressed going forward strategically, taking into account the costs and consequences? It's so important that, as you pointed out, to take into account where Congress has authorized war and what that conduct has been, and where the executive branch unilaterally took on the authority to start using drones or other weapons system with what costs and consequences, and how does Congress take back its power to address the things that you've raised? General Jumper, do you agree with Secretary Austin that uh, Center of Excellence to implement these principles and policies is a good idea? Yes, sir, I do. And do you think more should be done? Sir, I think that uh, one thing in my experience uh, that has not happened when we get into, and I think Afghanistan is an excellent example, is that uh, when we transition from the military operations, uh, which uh, in Afghanistan, uh, the military mission was uh, essentially accomplished in a matter of months, we transition to nation building uh, we don't have the uh, presence of the other agencies of the government uh, to uh, uh, implement uh, those, those, uh, that change in direction. And uh, it often falls to the military to do things that military, quite frankly, don't do very well. And uh, those, uh, 
the, so it's the part full participation of the government when it's appropriate, uh, I think is uh, uh, something else that has to be seriously looked at. It has to be funded. It has to be uh, governed uh, pro appropriately and pro with proper oversight, of course. Uh, next is Senator Hawley. What interests me is that the, the spokesperson at DOD, John Kirby, admitted that there was a significant breakdown in process. Those are his words, breakdown in process that led to this drone strike that killed these innocent civilians. And yet there's been no discipline or accountability whatsoever for anybody involved in the process. Is that typical? I mean, is, is it typical to have a breakdown in process of this magnitude and no remedial action be taken? Do you know? Uh, Senator, I'm probably going to have to defer to the general on that one. General? Uh, I do not know the details. A lot of that uh, operation was classified. I, th th these, in these hearings, and in my, I don't, uh, I'm not on the inside with classified information uh, anymore in my current uh, retired position. What I can tell you is that uh, the, uh, the people who were on the scope and uh, looking at the events, I think actually did believe that this uh, vehicle was about to cause uh, greater harm, was uh, laden with explosive, and was about to cause much greater harm uh, that uh, they were frantic to try to prevent. And uh, the, the mistakes that were make, made, I cannot characterize, but I, I think the, the situation was one that uh, they thought there was a very uh, extensive threat uh, that was about to take place. September the 18th from CNN, public reporting says the CIA sent an urgent warning before the missile hit the car, warning that civilians were in the car. Not ISIS-K, civilians were in the car. That's in real time. So civilians are killed. However, the next day, after the IC warning, after the death of the civilians, the next day, General Frank McKenzie, commander of U.S. Central Command, goes out and says that the strike had dealt ISIS-K a crushing blow. The next day, the, general, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, says that it was a righteous strike. The next day, the President of the United States goes out and claims victory for this strike. Now, what's strange to me about this is already we know that the military had been warned they'd gotten it wrong and yet the president of the united states the chairman of the joint chiefs all go out in public knowing this and go out and claim victory and say actually we got terrorists does that seem unusual to you i'm Sen certainly not in position senator to to gauge the reaction i can tell you that uh uh, notice uh, from in the press that a, a message went out. Where did the message come from? Who did it go to? How long did it take to get to the people who were actually uh, responsible for the engagement? I, all of that stuff is fog of war stuff that uh, requires uh, a much more close investigation than, than certainly I know about. So my colleagues and I represent the survivors of that drone strike as well as the California-based NGO uh, whose employee, Zemari Ahmadi, was killed. And I just want to be clear, um, we do not take positions on the political decision to get into war or withdraw. Uh, what we are work on is um, the human rights, the law of war, con the legal consequences. And I think it's very important to note that um, what happened there was unusual for certain reasons, but not unusual for other reasons. It wasn't unusual in that there was a 2013 Joint Chiefs of Staff study um, 
that identified misidentification of a target as the primary cause of civilian hostilities in Afghanistan, particularly due to perceived hostile intent from individuals who were later revealed to be civilians. And that is critically important because that goes to uh, the legal obligation of uh, U.S. forces to comply with the laws of war, and yet we came to find out that with this August 29 drone strike, um, the same finding that confirmation bias played a critical role in the wrongful death of uh, Zemarai Amadi and um, the, the killings of people alongside him. And so what we have here and why it's so important to look at these measures is a systemic issue and the need for a structural overhaul of how civilian harm prevention mitigation happens um, in order for it to be addressed uh, properly. And I will say this, and, and I'm sorry to go over time, but it is unfathomable to my clients that this would have happened given that Zemarai Emadi, an employee of a US NGO, was followed for eight hours. His, his employer, Dr. Kwan, keeps asking us, how can it be that they, missed, they couldn't do a simple search to see that he worked for a humanitarian aid organization, that water bottles were water bottles, not explosives. Um, and the need to address systemic civilian harm, to mitigate against it in the context of armed conflict is key. Um, but also we need to think 20 years later about preventing it entirely uh, in places where Congress has not authorized um, and has or, or considered costs or consequences. Thank you. Senator Blackburn. So let me ask you, General Jumper, um, are you concerned by the president's decision to use a raid instead of using a drone strike to carry this out? Well, thank you, Senator, for that question. Uh, I think uh, the answer to this uh, always uh, depends on the details of the target area at the moment. So if the choice is level the building uh, and not worry about who's inside or send in a group who can try to discriminate who's inside, you go for the, the ground option. If it's we can catch the person who's going to be walking out and we can recognize that person and catch him going to the restroom, which is in another building, and catch him in between buildings, and we can ha have the means to po positively identify that, that's another situation. So commanders make these decisions uh, and make these recommendations, I think, based on the tactical details of okay. the moment. Let me ask you this. Uh, we want to make certain we can prevent terrorist attacks. And we know that because of this, there's going to be a greater need to rely on drones to have that capacity uh, to prevent those tax, attacks from originating in Afghanistan. And uh, I've heard a lot from some of our military men and women on concerns about the length of time that the drones will be able to fly, where you're going to be able to launch from. So taking that over the horizon, if you could address that for me, please. Well, Senator, um, I have to say I share that concern. I, 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 am, I am worried that 
over the horizon, limiting ourselves to over the horizon counterterrorism capabilities in Afghanistan will not be sufficient to degrade the growing threat that we're already seeing from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I believe we have testimony from administration witnesses that Al-Qaeda and ISIS could redevelop the capability to hit the U.S. homeland as soon as April of this year. And, and to my knowledge, um, we, we have not been applying counterterrorism pressure to those organizations the way we did when we had a substantial military presence in Afghanistan. Um, if drones are flying in from the Middle East, seven hours into the country, seven hours back, you know, subtract from your 24-hour loiter time, that's not a whole lot of time collecting intelligence information. Um, it also increases, it seems to me, the risk of damage to civilians. The, the lower the fidelity we have uh, in terms of our intelligence information about the location, the identity, and the actions of our targets, the greater the risk that we're going to make mistakes uh, and that doesn't just mean we're going to fail to get the person we're intending to get. It could also mean that we inadvertently strike a civilian. Um, and as we all know, uh, that, that's something that the United States has to, to minimize at all costs. Thank you, Senator Blackburn. And I want to thank the witnesses uh, for appearing this morning. We're going to put in a record a statement signed by 115 organizations, including veterans groups, faith-based groups, and racial justice organizations urging the United States to end the use of drone strikes outside recognized battlefields. I understand the debate on this subject will continue apace because technology and the threat of terrorism pushes us into questions that weren't even obvious to us 20 years ago when we voted for the AUMF. Uh, keeping America safe is important, but keeping our values safe is equally important. I thank this witness, these witnesses for their testimony today and our witness who joined us uh, in a virtual fashion uh, from Yemen. Thank you all very much. This meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee stands adjourned. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare Noble wherever you found us, and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>